Good evening and a very warm welcome uh, back to our series on is the Bible's view uh, of sexuality dangerous? That's the topic for tonight. We've been looking at the topic of is the Bible oppressive or is Christianity oppressive over the last five weeks? But tonight we're going to particularly focus on the question of uh, the Bible's view of sexuality. Um, but before we begin uh, the discussion with Jim, who I'm delighted to see is here tonight and hasn't had a power cut, which is a real relief to me, Jim. It's great to see you. Um, I'm just going to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we give you thanks uh, for all that your word has to teach us about this important topic of human sexuality. Uh, Lord, it is something that uh, so many of us as Christians have had uh, questions about, have had struggles with. Um, and in our culture at the moment, Lord, there does seem to be a real uh, tension between what scripture says about this topic and what our society says. So tonight, Lord, would you just shed light uh, on what we should believe about these things? Uh, Lord, please reveal to us wonderful truth uh, through your words. And as Jim speaks to us, may he um, just really help us just have clarity on this issue. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'll help us to um, to love those in society who we do disagree with profoundly on some of these things. Help us, Lord, not to um, let that disagreement turn to hostility um, or viewing them as, um, as people who are more sinful than we are. We know that we are uh, wretched sinners saved by grace. So, Lord, give us a love uh, for those who disagree with as well. I ask it. So we pray for your blessing upon tonight and upon our conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. So as I mentioned in this series, we've been thinking about the criticism that is often made of Christianity and in particular that it's oppressive. And the big story that our culture and society tells us is this story from a prison house, if you like, remember that little cage I had on the screen at one point of restriction and oppression to the glorious freedom that comes with what we call personal autonomy. That is like this idea that we rule ourselves and we govern ourselves. And in that context, Christianity in general, and in particular, the Bible is regarded by many as being part of the problem, being part of that oppression. And to be honest, probably that comes into sharpest focus when we think about questions of sexuality. Um, the Bible is accused of uh, being repressive, of holding us back from our sexual desires and imposing on us a set of values or, or norms that basically alienate and marginalize people who refuse to conform to those values. So Jim, the first question I wanna ask you um, is this, and, and very warm welcome to begin with, it's great to see you. It's good to be here. How do we get to the point where sexuality has become this like real battleground issue between culture and the Bible or Christianity? Well, I think the key thinker in that story, Ollie, is Sigmund Freud. Uh, Freud taught that we're all sexually repressed. In fact, he thought that most of civilization came about because we repressed our deepest and darkest sexual desires, and we then sublimated all that repressed energy into things like art and engineering and so on. And then men like uh, Herbert Marcuse and uh, Wilhelm Reich took Freud's theories and applied them to the other thing we have talked about in this series, which is critical theory. Okay, So in their minds, Christian structures such as the family and church 
were repressive institutions which needed to be torn down. Uh, it was Reich who, who coined the phrase the sexual revolution, and he explicitly names parents and the church as the oppressive forces that had to be overthrown. So when you look at contemporary ideologies such as queer theory, they are quite open about their objective to tear down what they call the heteronormative structure, um, the thing we call uh, the nuclear family. And that explains why the institution of marriage and the affirmation of LGBT lifestyles have come to dominate um, the culture wars uh, in society in recent years. Okay, so that, that sounds like there's a lot going on. It sounds like it's quite complex, but let's just kind of strip it back to basics and ask what is the Bible's view of sexuality? Okay, well, we should probably begin by clearing away a common misconception. And the Bible is completely unembarrassed by sex. It sees sex as a gift from a good God. Um, now, it is true that some of the most famous figures in church history had weird and negative views of sex. There's a famous theologian called Oregon. He lived in the third century. And he thought sex was so evil that he castrated himself. Now, we should run a mile from all that diseased and negative nonsense. Remember, there is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to a treatment of sexual love. But to answer your question... Uh, Ollie, I would say there are two important foundation stones, if you like, two, two important foundations that Scripture lays down uh, in the early chapters of Genesis for healthy sexuality. And the first one can be summarized by saying that the Bible does not agree that love is love. Yeah, I think that, that's a slogan that you see online on social media and you hear um, people say in debates around you know, sexuality. Um, and it, it's quite powerful. It's quite compelling. Um, and it just seems almost like harsh or, or mean or unkind to disagree with it. So, so how would you maybe respond to that? Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful slogan. Uh, but here's the thing. Nobody believes it. The slogan is saying that all love is sexual love, but no one believes that. We all know that there are some loving relationships that have nothing to do with sexual expression. Love is a, a textured, uh, multidimensional thing. I mean, it comes to us in distinct forms. There's affection. Uh, friendship, uh, filial love, marital love, they're all distinct forms of love, and those distinctives are part of its essence. Uh, imagine we were all sitting down to eat a beautiful Christmas meal, Ollie, okay, and you're, so you're looking at a plate loaded with turkey and stuffing and, I don't know, roasted parsnips and mashed potatoes and um, cranberry sauce and gravy. But just as you lift your fork, I, I take your plate away and I tip the contents into a blender. And I say, food is food. And I then hand you back a glass of unappetizing, homogenized goo. Well, you get the point. The distinctives of love are part of its essence. Remove the distinctives, and love reduces to the destructive gaze of the self. So the first foundation of the Bible's view of sexuality is that sex is embedded within the context of a loving marriage. I mean, I, I alluded to the Song of Songs earlier. And in one of its poems, we read these words. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death jealousy as fierce as the grave. Now that verse matters because it reminds us that there's something about the nature of erotic love which desires the stability and the enduring quality of a covenant. In biblical thought, when a bride and groom enter the institution of marriage, they're entering into a secure space. The Song of Songs actually likens that space to a private garden that nobody else should invade. And within that private garden, the song cycle overflows with exuberant, uninhibited expressions of physical intimacy. Brilliant. So what we're saying is in a biblical worldview, uh, sex should be confined to this beautiful and wonderful relationship of marriage. And within that, 
Um, there are all these uh, delights and freedom of, ex of sexual expression. Um, but young Christians today live in a world where like that kind of biblical idea is regarded as kind of stupid and backward. Um, and many of them are growing up, uh, many, many young people grow up completely disregarding that kind of thing. You know, students on university campuses uh, may be familiar with like the hookup kind of culture. And according to the rules of that game, you're not allowed to become emotionally attached. There's no relationship really at all. Uh, there's no commitment. There's no exclusivity. And there's almost like a big uh, dividing line drawn between physical intimacy and emotional attachment. Emotional attachment is, seeing, is almost uh, seen as something much more significant than physical intimacy. Yes, but probably the best place to start is with the world of Tinder. Uh, not a sentence I ever thought I would utter. Um, I, I once read an interview with a Tinder user who, who said, he said this, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Okay, so sexuality is treated not as the embodied expression of covenantal love, but merely as an instrument for physical release and recreation. Um, the atheist philosopher Peter Singer once said, sex raises no moral questions at all. But that is a bleak, one-dimensional view of sex. It reduces it to nothing but a physical urge. I mean, what about the, the deeper, the more holistic yearning to connect with another person within the security of a covenant? The, the hookup culture is not new, of course. It's described with horrible accuracy in Proverbs chapter 30, uh, with its portrayal of the moral fool who commits adultery. And she, she, she eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. In other words, sex is just a natural appetite, like eating. Christians don't think that sexual hedonists give sex too much importance. We actually think they give it too little importance. When someone treats their own body as nothing more than a physical organism driven by physical urges, they are isolating sex from the rich inner life of the lover and the beloved committed to building an entire life together. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually, German. It's actually a very old idea, isn't it, to disconnect um, kind of the physical um, from kind of the emotional and spiritual. And in Corinth, some Christians had become infected with this idea. And they, in effect, said it's just a body. Um, so what's wrong with sleeping with a prostitute, for example? It was really shocking. Yes, it, it shocks you when you're reading through 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? But the interesting thing about that moment is that Paul doesn't just lay out a rule saying that sleeping with prostitutes is wrong. It, it takes a lot of time to talk about what goes on in somebody's body when they commit that act. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now, maybe the best way to understand his argument is to paraphrase it like this. Don't you know that when you hook up with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not? I mean, we talk about body language, and that is a valid term to use. The body speaks its own language. The poet John Donne wrote that the body is like a book where we read the intentions of the soul. Uh, there is a very good book I'm going to recommend about all this stuff uh, on the market that came out about a year or so ago. It's called Love Thy Body. Um, it's written by Nancy Piercy. And she cites some academic research that's been done about the hormones produced during sexual activity. Both men and women produce uh, chemicals that encourage trust and nurturing. And Piercy quotes an academic, an academic who says that during sex, our bodies make a chemical commitment to the other. So the attempt to reduce sex to a bodily function actually flies in the face of science. It's also degrading and coarse, I think. Sex has been reduced to a bodily function on a par with urination. 
When somebody says, I need to have sex, I must get release, they're admitting to sexual incontinence. And sexual incontinence, like all forms of incontinence, isn't really something in which one should take pride. So the first foundation stone in the Bible's view of sexuality is that it should be embedded within the covenantal love of marriage. You mentioned there was a second foundation there. What is that second foundation? Yeah, in the second creation account in Genesis chapter 2, you find this beautiful love story when God presents Eve to Adam. God had taken part of Adam in order to form Eve, leaving him incomplete without her. So when he sees Eve, Adam says, at last. He recognizes in Eve the person who complimented him, not just physically, but psychologically and spiritually. And we hear him recite the world's first love poem, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Sexual union between a man and a woman is more than a union. It's a kind of reunion. Okay, It's not the union of alien persons who do not belong to each other and cannot appropriately become one flesh. On the contrary, it's the union of two persons who originally were one, who were then separated from each other, and now in the tenderness of sexual encounter, come together again. So the Bible argues for what we might call other-centered sexuality. Okay? It's much more than a union of bodies. Uh, it's a blending of complementary elements through which that rich created oneness of human beings is experienced again. It's a reunion, a making complete so the complementarity of male and female sexual organs at the physical level is a symbol of a much deeper spiritual complementarity. So the second foundation stone that the Bible lays down is that marriage is a faithful, loving covenant between one man and one woman. Gender is a profound, God-given aspect of our identity. The ideology called transgenderism is a manifestation of Christianity's oldest enemy, the thing called Gnosticism. Now, of course, we live in a society that has embraced Gnosticism. We have to recognize that. Personhood has been decoupled from biology. So while we disagree with that philosophy, we must show respect for those in society who have embraced transgenderism. So in practical terms, I personally think it right to use a person's preferred pronouns, for example. Anyway, that was a bit of an aside. When it comes to the Bible's view of healthy sexuality, then the complementarity between men and women is a foundational element. And the reason is obvious, Ollie. It is the complementary union between a man and a woman that usually produces children. So these two foundation stones explain the Bible's vision for sexual activity. We have sex um, being embedded within the context of a lifelong faithful covenant between one man and one woman. And the union between husband and wife uh, usually creates biological children. Exactly. It's at this point, Ollie, that I think it's very helpful to ask the most basic question of them all. What is sexuality for? Okay. And the Bible's answer is quite clear. The covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is usually blessed with children. And so sexuality, in the Bible's view, is designed to form and sustain families. Now, the theologians would quickly point out that sexuality has an even deeper significance because ultimately it's a picture of the loving relationship between Christ and the church. But in the realm of practical living, sexuality is about family formation. It's not just about pleasure. So one of the best ways to explain the Bible's sexual ethic is to ask the question, what is sexuality for? Many people in society today would be quite outraged by that 
view, Jim, because they think that it denies sexual pleasure to anyone who isn't prepared to commit to a lifelong marriage. Some would argue that the denial of sex to certain people seems like a dehumanizing thing. Um, so they may maybe would say something like anyone who doesn't express themselves sexually is somehow diminished as a person or repressed as a human being. Um, they're denying themselves an essential aspect of humanness. How would you respond to that? Well, I would say it is a cruel lie and a real insult to single people. If it was true, then the Lord Jesus himself did not lead a full and complete life. He was never married. He never had children. But he lived a life bursting with vitality and radiance and joy and love. We need to jettison the cultural stereotypes of single people. Singleness is not sharing a can of tin tuna with a cat while watching a TV screen in some desolate apartment. In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, the Lord Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now that quote mocks the profoundly stupid idea that all love has to be expressed sexually. Uh, I said earlier on, love is a multi-leveled, multi-dimensional thing. So even if you live a life which does not include the physical intimacy enjoyed by a married couple, you can still live a life overflowing with love and hope and purpose. The Christian church was designed to help you forge a web of deep, abiding friendships, a set of loving relationships. Now, there's an important pastoral point to be made here about the consequences of sex outside of marriage. I have listened to young people who have tried and failed to decouple physical and emotional intimacy. And they tell me a story of pain and loneliness. I read about a student who sat in tears with her counselor saying, the student union taught me how to protect myself against STIs and pregnancy, but they never taught me how to protect my heart. Or think of the catastrophic effect of pornography on young men's ability to develop genuine physical intimacy uh, with a real spouse. There is so much sanity, so much common sense in the Bible's insistence that sexual activity be embedded within the context of a marriage. People who have no sympathy for the Christian view of sexuality would argue that sexual desire is a natural and powerful thing. Maybe they'd say something like, why would God create us with all uh, of this kind of powerful sexual desire and then tell us to repress it? Uh, they maybe would say that doesn't seem natural or even fair. Well, the first thing to say is that sexual desire is only one component in the overall architecture of the human personality. Um, I mean, to, to give a ridiculous illustration, suppose one evening after your evening meal, <clears throat> you and Rachel are sitting on the sofa in your living room and suddenly, without warning, my car comes crashing through the front window, demolishing your front wall in the process. And once I've clambered out of the car, you, you might, I guess, feel obliged to ask me what on earth was going on. Now, there are some reasonable explanations that I might give. But imagine I shrugged my shoulders and said, this machine has a really powerful internal combustion engine. It has gallons of highly flammable fuel inside it. So why should I repress all that energy? You might reasonably point out that there's more to a car than an engine and a transmission shaft. Cars also contain steering mechanisms and braking systems. They're also designed to be driven by a skilled and capable driver. So it would be equally absurd for someone to explain sexual promiscuity by uh, shrugging their shoulders and saying, I have lots of sexual desire within me. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire, but it is only one component in the overall architecture of the human personality. 
this idea that desire erupts from our biology with this unstoppable energy. Well, that might be a reasonable explanation for an animal's behavior, but it will not do for human beings. If I was a bear, when my back was itchy, I would stand up against a tree and rub the itch until it went away. When I desired food, I would eat berries or tourists. Uh, whenever I felt sleepy, I would hibernate. For a bear, desire is king. I want, therefore I am. Now, that's actually true of all animals, not just bears. So the problem with enthroning desire as king is that it reduces a human being to a mere animal. Human beings were designed to develop and appreciate all sorts of nuanced moral qualities. So we value things like perseverance or learning. The human personality is equipped with all sorts of balancing mechanisms that allow us to prioritize long-term gains over instant gratification. Sexual desire is a God-given thing, but it's only one component in our makeup. When we elevate it to king over our lives, we reduce ourselves to mere animals. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. Um, it's obvious, though, Jim, that that description of the Bible's view of sexuality differs dramatically from the view expressed by the LGBT community. So how would you answer their criticism that you've rob robbed them of dignity, in effect, by invalidating their sexuality? Well, these are really sensitive issues. Uh, a few years ago, a, a Christian pastor in England was arrested. He was held for 17 hours in a prison cell for reading out some verses in the Bible that offended LGBT people. He was fingerprinted, uh, forced to give a sample of DNA, and locked up just because he had read scripture in public. It is likely that some of the Bible's views will eventually be regarded in law as hate speech. So let me address any members of the gay community who might be listening to me now. Uh, let me address them directly. The Apostle Paul is fiercely critical of the LGBT lifestyle in Romans chapter 1. That is a simple fact that cannot be denied. But what you may not realize is that those controversial verses are part of a long argument that runs across the first three chapters of the book. And here's the thing. He spends two of those chapters being even more critical of self-righteous moralists and religious hypocrites, people who are much more like me than you. And in the end, when he has placed all of us in the dock, he concludes with four simple words. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the eyes of God, there is no difference between us. You may have been told that Christians are homophobic or transphobic. Maybe some of them are, and I'm sorry about that. But our church is not. I can tell you on the authority of the Bible that you are an amazing creature made in the image of God. You have incalculable worth and dignity. You have a soul that will last forever. And you are loved by God. And the Bible never, ever undermines your dignity as a human being. It condemns your behavior as it does mine. And it disagrees profoundly with your philosophical beliefs, but it never attacks your dignity. In fact, I would argue that Christianity ascribes much more dignity to you than anything offered by the ideologies of the progressive left. Behind the LGBT community's desire to be affirmed by everyone is a fragile sense of self-worth. It seems to me that you need society to be the wind beneath your wings. But Christianity offers you a dignity that doesn't depend on what other people think of you. 
Once you become aware of God's loving gaze, once you know that he sees you and appreciates you, then your self-worth becomes strong and immutable. So I hope you can find the grace to listen to me for a couple of minutes as I set out the facts, just the facts of the Bible's sexual ethic. In our culture, when somebody says, I am gay, they're really saying three things. They're saying, this is what I do, this is how I feel, and this is who I am. So the statement is really three statements, one about behavior, one about feelings, and the other about identity. Now, when it comes to behavior, the Bible sets its face against homosexual activity. As I explained earlier, the Bible confines sexual activity to the lifelong complementary covenant of love between one man and one woman. Now, in the 1990s, some progressive theologians tried to argue that the Bible has nothing to say about loving same-sex relationships. Uh, some of them argued that Paul was, in fact, criticizing pederasty or casual sex. But within the academic world, those attempts have failed. Even the most critical scholars, some of them who themselves are gay, now agree that the Bible condemns homosexual behavior. So there is only one way around that reality, and it requires us to apply postmodern interpretation techniques to the Bible. And we have talked about that earlier on in this series. And we're going to come back to that option in a minute, Ollie. So uh, I'll just anticipate the later conversation by saying that the new approach to biblical interpretation doesn't work in my judgment. So we are forced to conclude that the Bible unequivocally condemns homosexual activity. But what about feelings? What should we say about men and women, a good number within the Christian community, who experience same-sex attraction? Perhaps someone listening to me now has this profound longing for a connection to someone of the same gender. Often those feelings can create a real sense of loneliness. And if they're not handled properly by the Christian community, they can even trigger feelings of guilt and despair. Well, let me say quite clearly that same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria should attract neither praise nor blame. You did not choose these feelings. So why on earth should you feel guilty about them? There are good and godly men who experience same-sex attraction and who minister in the Christian church. Men like Vaughan Roberts or Sam Albury or women like Rosaria Butterfield. They live happy and radiant lives within the Christian church as celibate men and women. The idea that same-sex attraction can somehow be cured through various conversion therapies is dangerous and unworkable. It is based on bad science and bad theology. Now, it is true that sometimes same-sex attraction does dissipate over time. But usually it doesn't. You may have these feelings for all of your life. And that brings me to the final level, which is the level of identity, the this-is-who-I-am statement. Just because you experience certain feelings doesn't mean that you must embrace a sexualized identity. The Bible dismisses the whole philosophy called expressive individualism it dismisses that as a form of idolatry. So you may have these feelings, but they need not define who you are. I hope that simple statement can release someone who has been trapped in the ideologies of the modern self. Stop trying to build a self-created identity. Allow your Father in heaven to form and shape your self-understanding. And through a dialogue with the God who sees you and appreciates you, you can know yourself as a child of God a member of the body of Christ, and a pilgrim on the way to glory. Thank you, Jim. That's, that's a very helpful summary. 
there. Um, this series is about the Bible. So I, I want to go back to that point you, you touched on briefly uh, in your response there. Um, you mentioned the postmodern interpretation of the Bible um, has become the technique used to allow Christians to affirm LGBT lifestyle. So in other words, there are certain Christians today who say that they can read the Bible in such a way that actually it, it makes uh, an LGBT lifestyle permissible. Scholars agree that we can't explain those controversial verses in Leviticus and Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians away. But as we thought of a fortnight ago, we can follow people like Peter Enns or Rachel Hell Evans and treat the Bible a bit like a Lego set, which we use to construct a form of Christianity that fits uh, into this cultural moment and uh, kind of suits what we feel uh, at, this, at this current time. So how do you post-evangelicals who use that technique make their argument about sexuality? Well, nearly all of them revert to the topic we discussed last week, which was about the supposed oppression of women. Uh, one of the most famous post-evangelicals in the UK today is a man called Steve Chalk. And he's very fond of arguing like this. Okay, you evangelicals, he says. You have cheerfully jettisoned the Apostle Paul's restrictions on women teaching and leading in church. You argue for egalitarianism in church because, you say, Paul's instructions to women are simply not relevant to women today. So, he then argues, why do you apply postmodern interpretation to 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Timothy 2, but not to Leviticus 18 and Romans 1? Now, the problem is that his logic is actually very good. In fact, I think it is unassailable, which is why the doctrine of complementarity is so important in this culture. Give in to postmodernism on that doctrine, and you slide down a very slippery slope. In the end, you have no defense against someone who decides to give a fresh, culturally relevant interpretation of the resurrection. Yeah, thanks, Jim. That's about all we've got time for tonight. And I know in your reflection, you plan to, to think about how the church can respond pastorally to some of these really significant issues in our time. But we're going to end this particular conversation at this point. Next week's going to be a little bit different because we're going to use um, some technology called Slido. Uh, and Slido is essentially a way for um, everyone who's listening to ask questions uh, to Jim about kind of any of the topics we've had so far in this series. Um, so I'm sure some of the discussions we've had will have raised questions in your mind. So next week, we'll, we'll send out detailed instructions during the week. But next week, all that will involve is going to www.slido.com and entering the code uh, below. It, it may well be that code. It might be a different one, but we'll let you know during the week. And essentially, you can just enter a question there. Uh, we'll receive that question and uh, hopefully I'll be able to pitch those to Jim and uh, get, get, get some answers. Um, but it's uh, definitely a good, uh, it's a good opportunity just to um, maybe think a little bit more about particular issues that have come up over the past few weeks um, and things you'd like to know a little bit more about. So do uh, be thinking of questions before our final, um, our final discussion of the series. Um, we're going to sing another hymn now, and during that hymn, uh, if the CY guys uh, would leave this call and join our CY call, we're going to have a follow-on discussion. Um, so we'll see you just now.
I'd like to read some verses with you from Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, you might care to turn with me. Isaiah chapter 28. In these verses, the prophet is addressing the cultural elite of his day, uh, both in the northern kingdom and in Jerusalem. And we find him talking about their attitude to the word of God. We'll read verse 1 uh, for context. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. I had a literal level, Isaiah is talking about Samaria, which sat at the head of a, a fertile valley. But his picture of the elite is that of a swaying drunk coming from a party. He's trying to walk on a straight line, and he has a garland of flowers sitting askew on his head. That garland wrapped around the head signals to us that Isaiah, his focus is, uh, well, what his focus of attention is. Um, he's thinking about the mind. The prophet is mocking the cultural elite of his day. They had so absorbed a false worldview into their thinking that they were incapable of thinking clearly about anything. Now, what happens to people uh, when they get into that state? What happens when they encounter the word of God? Well, let's read on. Verse 13 tells us. We'll read from verse 13 together. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. Now, this strange verse is difficult to translate from the Hebrew, but scholars agree that the cultural elite were mocking the word of God. I mean, it's absolutely shocking. The repeated line, rule upon rule, line upon line, here a little, there a little, it's actually deliberately mimicking baby talk. If you've ever seen a parent hold an infant up to their eyes and say meaningless words like goo goo gaga, then you get the sense. An Ulsterman might translate these words, blah, blah, blah. Now, even if you go with the English words uh, that the ESV has, the mockery is still clear. The little rule here, another little rule there. To the sophisticated elite, God's word wasn't philosophically rigorous enough for them. It was pretty infantile stuff. Just a rule here and another rule there. All arbitrary. The problem Isaiah is raising here is a frightening one. The word of God isn't just being ignored. It's being treated as a lightweight thing. It cannot penetrate into the minds of these people. So they seem able to scoff at it. Have you ever asked yourself, why does Bible teaching run off some people like water off a duck's back? Well, that was a huge problem in Isaiah's day. The people in Isaiah's day reacted to God's word like a swaying drunk. When confronted with God's word, they would steady themselves for a moment and say, it's all double Dutch to me, old man. Don't understand a word of it. Now, Isaiah's not just being rude here. He's making a really deep point about what happens to people when they become intoxicated and befuddled by a false worldview. They become unable to understand the word of God. It just makes no sense to them. I'm sure you've often wondered about why God's word seems so easily dismissed in this culture. It's because our society is like a swaying drunk with a befuddled mind that cannot process truth. Now, there's a warning for us too in this passage, isn't there? If we spend our lives imbibing the worldview of this culture, if we fill our minds continuously with the values and the goals that are depicted in Netflix or Instagram or contemporary music, then eventually the word of God will become like baby talk in our ears. A little rule here and a little rule there. Uh, allow me to paint an even more shocking picture. 
Imagine parents who allow their children to get drunk regularly in their home. When their family's about to go out to church, the children stand swaying a little in the center of the room. All that stuff makes no sense to me. Why can't I get back to this nice bottle of wine? You would be horrified, <laughs> rightly so. And yet for hours every day, godless values and goals pour into the minds of teenagers through social media and streaming services. And that intoxicating brew makes it impossible for the word of God to cut them to the heart. Bible teaching comes across to them as goo, goo, goo. Now, this period of history that we're living through is in some ways unprecedented. For all of history up to now, the primary voice of authority in a child's life came from its parents. But now the voice of mom and dad is just one voice among so many others. The wine of culture has befuddled the minds of our children so they cannot hear the truth. So what is the answer? Okay, well, with a sense of relief, let's turn now uh, to Isaiah chapter 35. Um, Isaiah chapter 5, we'll read verses 8 through 10. Uh, we're reading here the end of the section in Isaiah that began uh, in chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So as we watch these saints walk along the highway of holiness, we're seeing a deliberate contrast with the old drunks we encountered at the start of chapter 28. Here is no garland of flowers sitting askew on the head of a drunkard. The heads of the redeemed are crowned with everlasting joy upon their heads. The highway of holiness. It's such a lovely phrase, isn't it? What a lovely picture for a church to hold on to. Some days in the days when we were allowed to have human contact, I, I used to be asked to speak at church weekends. And usually the church would go for a walk on a Saturday afternoon. Some would be pushing prams. Others might be on walking sticks. Children ran ahead and then ran back to tell mom and dad to hurry up. And often I would listen to them talk together about the Lord, about what lies up ahead for them all, even about their eternal destiny. At its deepest level, that church was walking on the way of holiness. Now, that is a great way to understand church. We aren't a religious club which consumers, consumers turn up to when they feel like it. We are a spiritual family walking on the highway to holiness. We have a destination, and in that destination is God himself. I guess the question I'm asking myself and asking you is this. How can we once again regain a sense of the wittiness of God's word? Well, at least one answer to that question is to be a member of a community that loves the word and which rejoices in its truth. The verses we read from chapter 35 just now talked of lions and ravenous beasts, and predators like that tend to prowl around a herd and pick off the weak and the isolated. That's why this pandemic is so dangerous, because we can't bunch together like a herd and find safety in numbers. So let me close by anchoring all that Isaiah has said in some really practical ways, okay? So that you know where I'm going. I'm really using this picture of a church walking along the highway of holiness as a picture of how our church can help and support parents 
as they build Christian homes. So that's where I'm, I'm going. We live in a society which can simply make no sense of the Bible's vision of human flourishing. Many people would listen to the conversation I've just had with Ollie and shrug their shoulders. It's all double dutch to me, they would say. It just makes no sense. The Apostle Peter makes that point quite often in his first epistle. He's talking to us about how to live in a pagan society. And he stresses time and time again that it is how we live that engages non-Christians. They don't really hear our words. They will only pause and listen when their curiosity is aroused by the way we live, when they see a completely different set of values and goals incarnated in our lives. And perhaps that incarnation of truth is best seen in the home. The formation of a Christian home is perhaps the most strategic thing any Christian couple can invest their lives in. But you have to jettison all that infantile nonsense that too many of my generation believed, that your only job is to hear a childhood profession of faith from your child, and then everything else is an optional extra. 95% of discipleship is worked out in the home, not in church. And so parents in this culture need to think deeply and imaginatively about how to protect and nourish their children's minds. Now, let me give you a few examples to get a conversation going among you. Keep a little basket on your kitchen table. Every mealtime, every mobile phone is put in the basket because mealtimes are for conversation, about listening to each other. Buy an alarm clock for every bedroom in the house and insist that all mobile phones are put in the basket when people go to bed. I know some parents who operate a no-technology-in-the-bedroom policy. Practice digital minimalism. Make sure you know every app on your teenager's phone. Operate a policy of transparency so that you can oversee their digital interactions. But more important, more important than that, talk to them about the philosophical ideas that lead people to take selfies and then agonize over the number of likes they get. Okay, think long and hard about how to explain the terrible dangers of expressive individualism. That is the philosophy that lies underneath sexualized identities. Model the health of living in the loving gaze of our Heavenly Father rather than in the destructive gaze of the self. These days, every parent has to become an apologist. Talk together as parents and work out how best to explain the good sense, the rationality and the sanity of the Bible's sexual ethic. Now, those few examples help us understand the sheer magnitude of the task that Christian parents face in this culture. And that brings me back to the highway of holiness. I'm suggesting that it takes a church to raise a family. Imagine a church family out for a walk. And in my mind's eye, I see the older members of the church deliberately arranging themselves around the outside of the group, creating a safe space for those pushing prams and carrying their young. It is essential that those of us who are older Surround all the families in our fellowship with prayer. Learn the names of every child and make a list to pray for them at least once a week. The notion of a safe space is particularly important for young women in this culture. The pressure placed on them is intolerable. We live in a cruel anti-woman culture that reduces women to a sexualized object. There is some evidence that this pressure is a contributory factor in the almost unbelievable rise in the number of girls who are seeking to transition from woman to man. The Apostle Paul instructs Christian men to treat young women with absolute purity, like younger sisters. And so it's essential for young women in this culture that they have in church an environment that is free from the pressure of objectification. 
But I guess I have left the most important aspect of Isaiah's metaphor to the end. The highway of holiness is a road that leads to a destination. The redeemed are walking towards Zion. They have purpose and direction. This is no group of drunks stumbling around in the darkness with no idea where they should go. This is a community that has a shared sense of purpose. They are convinced of where they are heading, and it's that shared sense of purpose that maybe allows a middle-aged woman to help lift a pram over a rough stretch of road. It's the more mature saint who comes alongside a weary parent and encourages them along the way. It is the Bible teacher who uses the truth of God's word to show the significance and purpose of the pilgrim journey. And the teenagers and young adults will look at how older people react to God's word, and they will see it incarnated in their lives. They will see its weightiness in your life. And so they will no longer hear baby talk. They won't think of the Bible as a little rule here and a little rule there. They will start to glimpse its weightiness when they see it incarnated in the lives of a community that loves and supports them. I want to finish by linking that general idea back to our topic for tonight. It is important that as a community, we are open and welcome to every member of society. We are called to express truth and love. Truth on its own is not enough. And so we welcome without affirming. But on the other side of that equation, those who draw alongside should know that we're not a religious club out for a picnic in the sunshine. We are on a journey to holiness. Everyone is welcome to join us on that journey. The journey for members of the LGBT community is not the journey to heterosexuality. It is the journey to holiness. And provided you are committed to that destination, then we would be honored to accompany you. But it would be discourteous and irrational to join us and then insist that we change direction and head off in a completely different direction. We are on the highway to holiness, and that is the non-negotiable trajectory of our lives. As a church family, we are going to have to become more skilled and more experienced in handling the sexual chaos of this society. Some of your children and grandchildren may well come out as gay in the years ahead. Others will get married to people of the same sex. Others may embark on a journey that leads to transgenderism. And throughout it all, we must speak truth and love. We can love and welcome without affirming. We can love and welcome without signing up to idolatrous ideologies. And we will offer support and wisdom and care to those parents and grandparents whose offspring have embraced those ideologies. There is nothing new here. The churches of Corinth and Ephesus were formed in the midst of sexually chaotic culture. We, like them, don't stumble like drunks who have imbibed false ideas. We are walking the highway of holiness, and we walk knowing that we shall obtain gladness and joy. One day the sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We're going to sing a final hymn. And uh, I've chosen a hymn that perhaps appeals particularly to those who experience profound loneliness. Sometimes the question we think of tonight, the question of sexuality, can create um, feelings of loneliness in people. And so this uh, lovely old hymn reminds us that there is a love that will never let us go.
Thank you for joining with us this evening. Our service is now over.